we have a problem with violence. I know it's a shocker. But it isn't the problem we think it is. The problem we have with violence isn't that it exists and we need to stop people from shooting and stabbing and maiming and killing each other. No, the problem we have with violence is that we have a long, rewarding relationship with it because a lot of times it gets us what, it, what we want. We, we get money, land, admirers, respect. And if we're really good at it, we get throngs of people screaming our names and millions of dollars in cash and prizes so that people can watch us do it. We spent billions of dollars taking bombs and putting cameras on them because watching the dust clouds from afar just wasn't good enough. Our truth is that the high points in American history and culture are all punctuated by violence. We make those who excel at war our presidents and our congresspersons. We call them leaders and heroes. And so many of our American figures of speech are steeped in violence that they're toothless for their commonness. Thomas Jefferson said in a letter to James Madison, I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing and is necessary in the political world as storms in the physical world. And that's a witty little socio-political statement. But ask any Syrian how their little rebellion has worked out for them. Ask a Liberian how their civil war has worked out. Or read accounts from our own civil war from two centuries ago and ask any Southerner today how they feel about it, and many times you'll hear the spite and anger and vitriol that seven generations later still rises to the surface so easily. The problem we have with violence is that, uh, is that violence isn't our rebellion. It's our doctrine. It's our creed. It's the sacrament of the American Christic cult. And we have offered the bodies and blood of millions and millions of people throughout history, worshiping at the altar of this vengeful God, who declares the sites of our slaughter to be hallowed. And we make pilgrimages to him in our television shows, in our movies, in our history books. Fort Sumter, Gettysburg, Hiroshima, Saigon, Bridge Over the River Kwai, Game of Thrones, Long May It Last, NCIS and its 57 spinoffs. And the truth of our culture is that superheroes and villains all have the same solution, a pulp fiction of mayhem that leaves cities and families in ruin behind them so that they can display their prowess on a stage that we clamor to see even when a city is falling down around our ears. We don't have a problem with violence, and that's our problem with violence. We have a deep and abiding relationship with violence that we've cultivated over the generations with great care and tenderness, nurturing the seed in our hearts and cultures. We long for and lust after violence. We sneak around with it after dark. We tell our children to leave it alone while we encourage them to play army or cops and robbers. And when I was a kid, cowboys and Indians was still played by a lot of people because the American West was nothing but six shooters and hunting down outlaws and savages according to what I saw on TV. Now it's true. We go through the motions and say that we don't allow it in our homes and our schools. We don't allow schoolyard fighting, and we make impotent gestures against domestic abuse. And it's true that the averages of violent crime have been in decline, but we're just as committed to that old God as we always were. We still enshrine it on Sunday nights and Saturday afternoons, never mind that half the players might end up with long-term traumatic brain injuries. Did you see that pass? It's not that we're actually against violence. What we don't want is for people to be promiscuous about it. 
After all, we're a moral people. We want to maintain our long-term monogamy by sanctifying our zealotry and doctrine that says it's okay as long as you follow the rules. We baptize and Gatorade and cheer the metal chair evangelism of WWE's Monday Night Raw and celebrate the homiletic brilliance of generals who exegete the texts of smart bombings and drone strikes and mutually assured destruction. We eat the meal of suffering gathered around the altar upon which we sacrifice our men, women, and children, generation after generation after generation. We make our leaders swear on the Holy Bible that they'll do it again. And I promise that we will. Now, the Westerns I mentioned, they do have a different narrative as well. That's that of sensible, hardworking people trying to live right and just lives. But I never knew that until I was an adult. As a child, the only narrative I understood was the narrative of the pistol. Samuel Colt. How many lives have we sacrificed in your name? Our violent idolatry is one that's deeply rooted, rooted in our narrative. Now, the gospel offers us a second narrative, a narrative of freedom. Not freed by war or a sword or by marching legions coming to bring it to us, but freed by the cross. God's power isn't rooted in violence, but in the creative energy of God's love. God creates and restores. God renews and revives our spirits that are so depleted by our culture with the healing water of God's love. God's answer to violence isn't to stamp it out in the Old Testament fashion. The Father's ultimate answer to violence is to do what generations of parents for time untold have done. He sacrificed his son and sent him off to war. Not a war fought with bullets or swords or bombs, but war nonetheless. It's the war against war. It's the struggle against violence. It's the holy campaign against the need that we have in our hearts to act out our own pain and fear and cravings for power and the utter terror that we have in the face of death that causes us to wage told and retold terrors against each other. It's the battle for the heart in which the only side that loses a life is God's side. I lay down my life so I can pick it up again, says Jesus. And again in chapter 12 of John, now is the judgment of the world and now the ruler of this world will be cast out and I, when I'm lifted up from the cross or lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. God's answer to violence is to offer it up on the cross. God doesn't defeat it by waging war with the heavenly army. God disarms violence and robs it of its power with love. And in the utter defeat of this doctrine of violence, God's love stands free from the neatly folded grave clothes in an empty tomb. Love conquers hate, casts out fear, and reveals that the power of violence is fruitless when it comes to accomplishing God's objective of redeeming creation. In God, there is no other, which means there's no one to fight. But pastor, I can hear some of you saying, didn't Peter bring a sword? Obviously, we're supposed to defend ourselves. Let's look at that. The one time in the Gospels where we see a disciple take up arms is in Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And Matthew, one of Jesus' followers, drew a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest who was present at the arrest. The violence is faceless and impersonal. It's just a servant, right? So much of the violence of violence is that what our culture of violence does is dehumanize us all, making us potential victims and impending threats. Even if we're a psychologist trying to comfort an autistic man, this violence is so deeply ingrained that we don't even know why anymore. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter who it is. There's always a reason. It's just Iraq or Afghanistan. 
they've been fighting over there for years and we need to take them some freedom. It's just a black person. You know how they are. They'd shoot each other if it wasn't us. It's just a cop. They all hate us anyway. It's just a soldier. That's what they signed up for. It's just a criminal. They had it coming. It's just an immigrant, a Jew, a Muslim, a Syrian, a Mexican, a woman, a poor person. They had it coming. The false god of violence robs us of our identity. God gives it back. In John's gospel, it's Peter who drew his sword and struck the servant, Malchus, the servant of the high priest, Caiaphas. In John's account, Jesus doesn't heal Malchus, but he gets something more important. He gets a name. Malchus gets a name. Malchus gets a face. Malchus gets an identity. It wasn't a disciple who cut off a servant's ear. It was Peter, the disciple of Jesus and future leader of the church who struck out and wounded Malchus who served in the temple with Caiaphas. The love of God destroys the power of the violence to make us nameless and faceless, to make us another casualty, to allow us to lump people into categories so that their loss can feel justifiable. The gospel tells us that to God, we all have names, and those names matter. Tonight, we hear this good news in the face of tragedy that all these names are sacred to God. Sanctified in God's heart as beloved and accounted for, God sees us, all of us, and loves us, all of us. It's time we stop our insistence on worshiping at the altar of false gods whose worship brings us death and pain. We must choose not to make an idol out of the violence rooted in our culture and make excuses for it. It's time to stop our belief in the lie that the only thing that will solve blood is blood. God leads us down the way of the cross. And along that way, God teaches us that the only way to stop violence is to stop violence. To put wheels on this thing, what do we carry with us? What do we do with this? We simply carry what we've always known, that through the waters of baptism, we no longer belong to the world. We belong to God and we belong to each other. And these waters make us a part of a family that's eternal, stronger than our birth families because it's a family God is creating around us in all times and places as we gather as one around the table, which requires no sacrifice that we could bring. Ours is the story of a family born in water and word, washed clean of our violent idolatry and called to live in peace. And as we're washed clean of this brokenness, we carry with us a new truth, the only hope and promise that can give rest to our weary hearts. In God's family, water is thicker than blood. And it's in this water that we find ourselves standing beside our own neatly folded grave clothes in an empty tomb. It's in these waters that God conquers our wandering hearts with the only thing that has any real power in this universe, love.